if everyone is trying to defend themselves and inflation becomes the thing that they think about all the time, that's companies and households, households want to make sure they defend their incomes. Companies want to make sure they make enough money still and defend their profit margins or try it on a bit. And you get into a spiral. So it turns into a vicious circle. Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson. I'm director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And today we're going to be talking about inflation, what's wrong with it, maybe even a little bit about what it is and how you measure it. And to help me answer those questions, I'm joined by Chris Giles, economics editor at the Financial Times and a long time ago, a former colleague at the IFS, and Peter Lavelle, who is currently an associate director at the IFS and an expert on inflation. Chris, let's start with the Let's start with the basics. What is inflation and why do we worry about it so much? Inflation, to use the textbook answer, is a general rise in the level of prices. And so that doesn't mean that the price of milk goes up, but the price of butter goes down. It's that all prices will go up by a certain amount. And that's what you're measuring, the general level of prices. There's a target in the UK, and it's most other countries similar to the UK have a target of about 2% for the level of inflation. Why is it not zero? Why do we talk of 2% inflation being price stability, not zero inflation, prices staying the same? And that's really just to allow, to grease the wheels of the economy a bit, to allow some prices to rise and other prices, not necessarily to fall, but to stay the same and having some prices go up relative to other prices, which we think is a good thing because some things are more in demand and other things are less in demand, or that you might have more productivity in certain areas. So we've seen the price of electronic goods collapse in the last 30 years. And that's a really good thing because we are richer, our incomes stretch further, we can buy more of them. And other things like domestic services prices have often risen faster than the overall level of inflation. And you need that relative adjustment. And that's why it's thought to be slightly easier to do that at a level just above zero than zero. This is not a big issue for us today, but it's something that people worried about quite a lot, not very many years ago at all. People are actually quite worried that we might end up with negative inflation at certain points over the last decade. Prices actually falling. Right now, that sounds like a wonderful thing. Why, why were people actually really quite worried about prices falling? Well, if you have prices falling, it generally goes with incomes falling as well. And so prices falling and income staying the same basically fine. Everyone is better off. You can buy more stuff. But if you have incomes falling and then you have debts which don't fall, then you find it harder to pay your debts. And so the real problem of negative inflation or deflation, as economists like to say, is what a thing called debt deflation, where debts get bigger, harder to pay. What you are producing means it's harder to get round paying off the debts that have accumulated over the past, and then that can end up in defaults and horrible things happening. Yeah, if if your income's going down and your debt and your mortgage or whatever is the same in nominal terms, then you're going to really struggle. And actually, we've seen the reverse of that at various times. Early on in my lifetime, high levels of inflation during the 1970s meant that people who took out what looked like big mortgages in 1970 had piddling mortgages by the time they got to 1980. So you're talking about almost the opposite effect. And we've seen in the past year, so we've had high inflation all around the world. And in the latest International Monetary Fund fiscal monitor, they did a little box on 
how much this high inflation has lowered the debt levels of countries. And so countries which have very high levels of debt, Greece, for example, went down by about 20 percentage points in GDP. Wow. And so you had some really big effects. And that was because it was unexpected. So that people, the people who Greece owed the money to hadn't got round to saying, well, actually, we want a higher interest rate because of all of this inflation. Because it came unexpected, you had one-off very big gains in a lot of Southern Europe. So some of the debt ratios in those countries have come down quite a bit. Not here, because our debt is much more linked to inflation than most other countries. That was because we thought we had a bad inflation problem, in, particularly in the 1970s. And we wanted to show the rest of the world in the 1980s that we had got over this hump of having being the sick man of Europe, the country with the worst inflation. And one way to do that is to try and get more credibility into your policy to say, we are going to get rid of that inflation. And one way of doing that is to issue quite a lot of debt, which is linked to inflation. And if you link that to inflation, that means that you as a government have a lot of downside if you actually generate inflation. And it's a way of having credibility. Also, our pension funds and our pension industry in this country also likes index-linked guilt because a lot of its liabilities are linked to inflation as well. So it's a, it's matches their assets and their liabilities. But that's why the UK has traditionally had, and we've got far more than any other advanced economy. So our debt levels this year have been far more sensitive to the inflation that all countries have experienced than any other advanced economy. And it's one of our problems going forward is that we're paying quite a lot of interest on our outstanding debt over the next few years. So we've got lots of tax taxes going up. But with that tax going up, we haven't actually got that much extra to spend because we're part one for lots of reasons. One of the reasons is that we're spending so much on debt interest. Peter, we've talked a lot about the sort of macro issues around inflation. One of the things that people often say is that the other thing that inflation does is slightly randomly redistribute between people. Some people win, some people lose as a result of inflation. It's not deliberate and that's actually can end up being very unfair. Yes, and that's a big issue with the inflation at the moment is it was unexpected and it's volatile. And as Chris said before, this has distributional effects. So it redistributes from people who had high debts who are going to benefit from the high rates of inflation and away from savers whose savings might be fixed in nominal terms, in cash terms, and see the real value of their savings fall as inflation rises it's going to have effects on the tax system because not all of our taxes and benefits rise each year in line with inflation in the way that arguably they should. And that means that some people end up paying more tax than they would otherwise and other people being less tax than they would otherwise. And these kind of arbitrary redistributions, it creates unpredictability and it's not particularly fair. No one planned things to go this way. No one expected things to go this way. And it's an arbitrary consequence of inflation. To some extent, government's been quite pleased about this. So one of the ways they've raised taxes is to keep the point at which you start to pay income tax fixed. And that's raising an awful lot more money than they expected because prices have gone up an awful lot more than they expected. Yes, that's right. Exactly. It's one of the largest tax increases in the last budget was not increasing some of the allowances in, in line with inflation, netting the government, as you said, a large amount of money. And that's a wonderful way to raise taxes in a way it's essentially hidden from most people. So we're not increasing the rate of income tax, and we're not actually changing any of the parameters in income tax. We're not changing the cash terms point at which you start to pay income tax, but we're dragging more and more people into paying it, and a bigger fraction of our income is being taken in tax over time, which is say the government would be very happy about, but uh, rather 
rather randomly takes money away from people in a way that was actually when these in measures, these freezing of allowances and thresholds were first introduced, this level of inflation wasn't expected. These turned out to be much bigger tax rises than were originally intended. I want briefly to talk to both of you again about what this inflation thing is and how it's measured. And we hear about this occasionally. We've heard the junior doctors, for example, say that their pay has fallen by 35% in real terms over the last decade or so. But in doing that, they're not using the measure of inflation that we tend to use. They're using a measure called the Retail Prices Index, which many listeners may be familiar with because it's the longest standing one. But the measure used by the Bank of England is something called the Consumer Prices Index, the CPI. And actually, the ONS has a third measure, the Office of National Statistics, that it prefers, the CPIH, which is the Consumer Prices Index, including housing costs. So that's all terribly confusing. We've got three headline measures of inflation and lots of claims made about made about each of them. Chris, perhaps you could just start by untangling those three things that I've just mentioned, CPIH and RPI. So the RPI, the Retail Price Index, is the index which is, which is only use in the UK is, well, in terms of its sort of academic use, is it's very long-standing. So it has a long history. It is used a lot, particularly for indexing government bonds. So the index-linked government bonds, and that's a market of about £500 billion. So a lot of money, I think we can safely say, is goes up with the RPI index every year. But it has some severe problems, which got a lot worse in 2011, which is that part of the index, and this is where it all gets, you, you don't really want to know some of this yeah, stuff. Yeah, we probably don't. Just tell the listeners that it's wrong. Yeah, just it's wrong <laughs> and it's too high. And it's too high, particularly because when prices bump up and down, if, they, if you measure things where prices going up and down, it puts an upward bias into the into it. It's, the maths is all very clear. Everyone understands it who wants to understand it. Which is which about is, three people. Which is about nobody. And <laughs> Peter's uh, smiling because he's certainly one of those people. And and it got worse because of the way the ONS changed the way it measured clothing prices, which made more bumpiness in the way that clothes were measured. And then, so it's about one to two percentage points higher than the consumer price index, and even more than currently the consumer price index with housing costs. And the with housing bit, just to, so to help listeners know, the CPI versus CPIH, they're both basically the same index, they're calculated in the same way, but the CPIH takes account of owner-occupied housing, because obviously owner if you own your own home with a mortgage, you do have to pay for the housing services. So what are housing services? Those like your location, your shelter from the rain and the elements, and the amenities of your house. Those are the sorts of things you get. And the ONS have decided that they will try and measure those things Say if you rent a house, you're also buying the same sort of stuff. So we can we can proxy those things, which you don't pay any money up front or out of your pocket for, by what's happening to rents. And rents aren't going up as fast as in price as the other goods and services in the inflation basket. So the RPI, the old one, is higher than the CPI, the Bank of England headline one, which is higher than the CPIH, which is the one that the ONS prefers, though hardly anyone actually no one. uses. We could delve into this for hours and hours. Hopefully, listeners at least gathered that measuring this stuff is incredibly hard, and we've only just touched the very tip of the top of the surface of some of the complexities involved in measuring inflation. I mean, just imagine that you have to, all the millions of goods and services that we consume in the economy, and every month the ONS has to come up with one number to say how much those prices have 
increase. And that is something I'm sure that those of us sitting around this table will continue to think and argue about for many years to come. But let's get back into the sort of the everyday real economy. Inflation at the moment is somewhere around 10%, something five times higher than the Bank of England's target of 2%. And this is really for, for many people, a completely new experience. I think this is the highest it's been since sometime in the late 1970s. Chris, is this all just Ukraine? Would we be down at 2% if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine? Or is this a rather more complicated story as to why the number is so big today? That's the big argument around the world. So, you know, there is a lot of Ukraine in there, but it's not only Ukraine. Why are we at what 10.1% on the CPI in March, which again, is, a, is, is the early 1980s, about 80, 82-ish, I think is the last time, but highest in 40 years. And that again is pretty much where most countries are highest in 40-year territory. Now, so it's particularly high in the UK. So we are at the moment higher than the US and the Eurozone, not higher than every country in the Eurozone, because the UK consumes a lot of natural gas. So Ukraine is really important for natural gas prices because that affects both our heating costs, which we are a cold country, we heat our homes, we spend a lot of money on heating our homes in the winter, but we also generate a lot of our electricity, about 40% from natural gas, whereas France generates about 75% of its electricity from nuclear power, for example. And that's, that explains a lot of the difference. Countries that are closer to the Eurozone and also who have more food in their inflation baskets, so they're poorer, so they, people spend more money on food. So the Baltic states, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Hungary, Czech Republic, all have even higher inflation rates because they both also use a lot of gas and use a lot of food. And those are the items that have gone up most in price. So the key reason why inflation has got so high is food prices and energy prices. But that has then morphed into other goods. So you now look about 75% of the items in the UK's inflation basket are rising at more than 5%, so more than double the Bank of England's target. And that part of that's indirect cost of energy. So your restaurant has to use gas and electricity to cook the food, and it also uses food ingredients in there. But it's also because we are seeing now what is really an un unhelpful term that economists use with second round effects that we're seeing. Because inflation's been so high, everyone in the country thinks, oh, I need to try and defend myself against this inflation. I want a higher wage increase and we'll ask for higher wage increases. Lots of employers will give it to them, but then employers go, oh, my wage bill's gone up quite a lot. I think I need to raise my prices. Or my electricity bill's gone up, I'll raise my prices. Or everyone can see that prices are going up, I'll try it on. I haven't been able to do this in the last 20 or 30 years. People would have just been outraged, but now all prices are going up. I'll see if I can get away with it. And so you're seeing this move into what the Bank for International Settlements, which is the Central Bankers Bank in Basel, they call like a high inflation environment. And the trouble is you can get stuck in that. So if everyone is trying to defend themselves and inflation becomes the thing that they think about all the time, versus companies and households, households want to make sure they defend their incomes. Companies want to make sure they make enough money still and defend their profit margins or try it on a bit and you get into a spiral. So it turns into a vicious circle. And that is, there is some element of that because wages are rising fast. Corporate margins in lots of countries have gone up. We don't know how durable that is. And so there, that is the big concern. And that's what central banks are most worried about. It's that movement from just a surge in 
energy, food prices, all to do with Ukraine or external things, you could do nothing about that. That just was something that afflicted us and we just have to suck that up. And then the inflation that begins to become self-fulfilling and you've got to drive that out of the system. That's not terribly cheery. Before we go on to the future, you've talked about food prices, you've talked about energy prices, you've talked about Ukraine, you've talked about the sort of second round impacts of that. Did COVID play any role in this? Did the hundreds of billions that Western economies chucked at their economies play a role as well? Or was that sort of not really relevant to this? No, I think it is relevant. It's relevant to different degrees in different countries. The place it's most relevant to is the US by a long way, because I'm going to just generalise here. In Europe, what countries did was mostly a little bit like what the UK did with furlough, that you would be paid to not work for a period, but you'd be attached to your company. In the US, they had a different approach, which was to say, well, let your firm lay you off and we're going to we're going to stuff you with loads of money and a lot and lots of money so lots of people were better off in covid than they were when they were working and then then when covid goes away that your company can rehire you if they want or can take a different choice and there was a bit lot of argument during covid which was the better type of policy to do as it turns out the us way of doing things because they really spent so much such large checks were sent to households, that actual demand was very strong, and particularly demand for goods, because you couldn't pay for consumer-facing services like restaurants or going out to the cinema because they were shut. So it was demand for goods uh, went through the roof, particularly in 2021, and that then hit global supply chain problems because it was harder to produce things, but actually demand was higher than normal. So there was just a lot of demand for goods, and then the price went up globally. Shipping companies found it more difficult. There were lots of difficulties to get about getting goods to flow around the world. Uh, but that was mostly a US thing. In Europe, it was mostly an energy and food price thing, which actually in some ways makes us all much more poor because it's these necessities that have gone up by a very large amount, which we have to spend our money on, and our incomes haven't gone up so much, making us poor. And this is where Hugh Pill, the Bank of England's chief economist, got into all sorts of difficulty last week by just sounding insensitive. What he was saying was entirely correct, that if necessities you buy go up a lot in price and they're imported, you as a nation and all the people in that nation are worse off. And then there's a distribution about who's going to be actually worse off and who might be spared. That's what he was trying to say. But he said he basically made it sound as if you need to stop trying to make my job in the Bank of England more difficult, you <laughs> horrible. And it made people very cross because it's in the end, that is not the Bank of England's job to be telling people how to behave. Yeah, it's uh, in a sense, I'm afraid it is rather commonplace among us economists talking together. We, we have been saying for a while, this thing just has made us all worse off, that uh, the price of, you say, food and energy has gone up. We're importers of these things. We as a country have become worse off and overall... We as individuals, perhaps not all of us, but on average, we as individuals are going to be worse off as a result of that for some for some period of time. Peter, that's not affecting us all the same, though. You've looked quite a lot at the extent to which the current bout of inflation that we're suffering is affecting some people more than more than others. Whilst Hugh Hill was correct, we're worse off overall. It's also the case that some of us are not doing quite so badly, but others are doing really much worse than the average. Yes. So when we talk about headline figures for things like the CPI, what we're measuring is an average. It's the increase in prices as they would affect the average household. And of course, households differ from the average. 
Some might be spending more of their budgets on energy. Some might be spending more of their budgets on food than other households. And they're going to naturally be hit harder by price increases, which, as Chris says, are predominantly affecting energy and food prices. And the unfortunate thing is that it tends to be those on lower incomes that spend more of their budgets on energy, more of their budgets on food. And what we've been able to do at the IFS is to use survey data on how people spend their money to compute new inflation rates that are specific to different income groups. Uh, and we see that the average inflation rate is about 10%, but for the, those on the lowest incomes, it's closer to 14 15%. For low-income people, they're not facing inflation of 10 which is bad enough. They're facing inflation of up to 15% because they spend a lot of large fraction on food and energy. Yes, and they're about three times more exposed to energy and food prices increases as richer households. So inflation has these distributional consequences that are masks when you just look at these kind of average numbers, higher they are. Going back to our original discussion, what's wrong with inflation? At the moment, it's just redistributing away from poor people. Or arbitrary. If you happen to be housed at a cold Victorian house which needs a lot of energy to keep it warm. Chris, uh, by the way, lives in one of these houses. I live in one of them. You are <laughs> going to be cold and poor. If you happen to be housed, we're talking about social housing, if you happen to be housed in a modern, well-insulated flat, then you might well be better off because the compensation you've received, again, an average number across the country for higher energy bills might have been more than the extra you had to pay. It's arbitrary and that's why people hate it so much. Now, absolutely. And, uh, and why we may have quite a lot more pain to go through to, as you put it, squeeze it out of the system. Interest rates have already gone up a lot, though they're still... One of the things people talk about is interest rates kind of got new high levels, but of course they're way below what actually inflation is. So in the sense the real interest rate is still very negative. Do, do you think interest rates have got a long way to go up or are we, are we stopping here? We mostly think that interest rates will certainly almost certainly go up on the 11th of May to four and a half percent. That's pretty much baked in as far as the financial expectations are concerned. And financial markets think they might go up further than that to, to close to five percent by the end of the year. A lot of more of the economists who study this on a day to day basis think that's probably a bit too far. The Bank of England has already said it's not minded to put interest rates up, it'll only do so if it sees the inflation problem lasting. And I think that real interest rate number you just said saying they're still lower than inflation so it's still in that sense a negative that's true for current and it's a, but that's a backward looking mm. number it's not a forward looking number so if we're expecting interest rates to be four and a half and having inflation coming down by the end of the year it is going to come down because all of, all of the energy price rises from last mm. year are going to fall out of the 12 month comparison that doesn't mean prices have come down it just means inflation comes down later this year, then you probably will start having positive real interest rates. So the prospective real interest rate is now much higher than it was. So they, we do think these interest rates are restrictive. If you've got a mortgage coming off a two or five year fix, you are certainly going to be noticing the difference. Another arbitrary thing, if you were two years ago, thought, oh, I'll get a two year fix. That wasn't a dumb decision, but it will feel pretty stupid now, or pretty unfair. But just because you are one of the people who are going mm. to take a lot of pain for what the Bank of England is trying to do is trying to generate an average amount of pain across the country to lower demand, lower spending, make it harder, make people think twice about raising prices, make companies think, if I raise my prices now, maybe people won't buy the goods and then maybe that will actually hurt me more than sticking with them where they are and the same for wage demand. So that's the purpose of higher interest rates is to both make people think twice about raising wages and prices and also 
makes saving, again, not spending, more attractive than spending and borrowing. Yeah, and this impact on mortgage payments is really big. Some work we did here suggests that, on average, people under the age of something like 40, I think, this is effectively, it will be a 10% cut to their income. Yes, I think, yes. So for younger households with mortgages, the effect of that increase in interest costs on average is basically equivalent to the inflation of non-housing items. So it's like being hit twice, once by the increase in prices, once by that hit interest So even if the wages go up 10% to compensate for the rest of inflation, your overall income, your disposable income is still down by that 10% because of its impact on your mortgage payment. So that's a real hit for younger people who have recently bought a house. It's really interesting. One of the things that we used to think about and the damage of inflation in the 60s and 70s was it hit older people because often they had flat rate pensions and they didn't go, they had no indexation mm. in their pensions. Mm. And the, sort of the feeling was that inflation was really bad for old people wow. and really good for young people because often because they had their mortgages whittled away by that and their incomes are rising faster than inflation, even when inflation was high. And that's completely turned around now. So older people have, if you're a pensioner, and much more of your income is going to be indexed linked and your state pensions are going to be indexed linked. And it's young people who are really suffering. And so that's a real change in society and who's hurt by inflation, which I think is quite an interesting thing. I suppose the the real mortgage, if you do have a big debt, the real value of that is going to be whittled away by this. So there's a short-term hit. Less so than in the 70s, because incomes are rising lower than inflation and they were rising faster than inflation. Then, so even though you had very high interest rates in the seventies, your the growth of your income on average was faster. Whereas now, it isn't. I was just being hopeful there, having bought a house and taken out a mortgage about a year ago. Uh, as, as I'm sure you have to tell the trustees and demand some more money, and then they'll, <laughs> then they'll give you a lecture about second hand effects. Yeah, about why, how, yes, and how foolish I was buying a house a year ago. So let's finish off. Just you've already gazed into your crystal ball a little bit, uh, Chris, in terms of you know, thinking about inflation coming down. And uh, it sounded like you were pretty confident that the Prime Minister would have his wish, which is that inflation we halve half at the end of the year what it was at the start of the year, though no thanks to anything he's going to do. That's simply partly the job of the Bank of England, partly the result of energy prices at least no longer increasing. The OBR, the Office of Special Responsibility, was even more optimistic. I think they thought that inflation would be something like 2 or 3% by the end of the year. What's your sense of where we'll be? And are we on course to squeeze it out and get to the Bank of England's 2% rate within a couple of years? Or are these second round effects piling up so that we're stuck in a high inflation equilibrium? That's the really difficult question. In yeah, fact, that's why no, I asked. I know. But, so what you can say, I'll tell you what you can say and what, you, and what we know and what we don't know. Inflation is going to come down. It's going to come down really quite fast this year because the energy price rises in particular are going to fall out of the 12-month comparison. So In the next set of inflation figures, which are for April, we're going to see a large fall because there were very large rises last year. Also, in the October numbers coming out in November, the same will be the case. We should also expect food prices to stop rising and begin to fall soon because global food prices peaked in the summer of last year. And there's a lag before that goes into retail food prices. And so that should be coming through. What we don't know, so inflation is going to come down and Pretty much everybody thinks it's going to be half, at least five by the end of the year. So Rishi Sunak will meet his pledge again, but not because of anything he's done. What is unknown and difficult at the moment is, does it stick a bit too high? And that is where 
every, all the economists and the Bank of England will be looking very closely at what's happening to wages and also what's happening to corporate margins, what's happening to really quite salient items that people notice, like food prices. That's why one of the reasons food is so important. It's not only a big part of what people spend, but it's also something people notice, and they notice it in the shops. And so if, they, if you keep seeing prices going up, you're more likely to try and defend your own incomes. And so where the Bank of England is concerned, and I think it's really quite noticeable in the way they model inflation, because their model doesn't have any second round effects in it. They assume that they're credible and inflation just comes back to target. Their model has no second round effects? No, it has no second I round I didn't effects. know that and I'm horrified. And they're pretty horrified as well. So <laughs> their do, model. What they do is they have a central forecast which comes out of the model. It's because they're called their modal forecast, but it's the mode of... And then they put a distribution around that. But that distribution is entirely made up by the MPC. It's not coming out of a model or doing anything particular. They just make it up and they say, at the moment, in February, they said, actually, we think inflation is going to be 0.8 percentage points in two years' time higher than the number coming out of the model. So we're going to put a skew on a distribution around that modal forecast. But that's an entirely made up number, that skew. It looks, and often they talk about it as if it's something coming out of something very clever model, but it isn't. It's just them sitting around in the NBC going, oh, how much should we put the skew at this time? And it's the highest they've ever had it. So they don't believe their own model at the moment. And that is why I think it is so uncertain, is because no one quite knows how pervasive these second round effects are going to be. We heard it here first. The Bank of England's forecast of inflation is entirely made up. I think that's broadly what Chris Giles of the FT just said. Before we finish, next April inflation will be out quite soon, Peter. We're not going to ask you to gaze quite as far ahead. That's going to be that's going to be a fair bit down on the ten percent we saw last month. Is it? Yes, we can be, the one thing that we we're pretty confident about forecasting is energy prices, at least in the near term, because they're capped by the energy price guarantee and 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 then by Ofgem. And the big thing is that there was a big hike in energy prices last April. That means that energy prices this March are roughly double what they were last March. But once we get to April, the increase will be more like a quarter. So the rate of energy inflation will fall quite dramatically, and that's going to feed through into the price index. I think it's important to remember this is a change in the rate of inflation. So this is a change in the rate at which prices are increasing. They're still going up. It's just they're not going up quite as fast as they were before. And then, yes, and then most forecasts, we expect and we hope the inflation rates are going to come down closer to target early next year. So a modicum of good news on the horizon, but an awful lot of uncertainty. And you can see why the Bank of England chief economist is going out there kind of trying to get people to stop increasing their blooming wages, because the sooner everyone collectively does that, the sooner inflation will come down and the sooner we can all get back to a more normal and manageable world. But absolutely, of course, it is in every individual's interest to try and do the best for themselves. And it's absolutely ludicrous, as Chris was saying, in some sense, for anyone sitting in the Bank of England or the government or anywhere else telling people not to do it, because they'd individually be crazy not to. And therein lies the collective action problem that is dealing with high levels of inflation. Chris Peter, it's been fantastic, if a little depressing, talking about inflation, but then talking about inflation is never going to be a great barrel of laughs. But thank you, everyone who has managed to sit through this slightly gloomy podcast. Thank you for listening to this particular episode of the IFS Zooms In. To see more of our work, do go to www.ifs.org.uk. Do tune in to our future editions, of course, 
and to further support us, consider becoming a member of the IFS for as little as £10 a month. You can find out more in the episode description. We will see you next time.